Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 1. Today our reading will be verses 6 through 11. As we think together about uh, missions and focusing on mission in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. I remember when I first became a pastor uh, around 40 years ago and uh, was pastoring a church, a rural church in Tennessee near my hometown. It was Mount Lebanon Baptist Church. And uh, I remember going over sometimes on Saturday night and preaching the message to an empty building uh, just, just to do it, just to build some confidence, uh, really learning and trying to teach myself how to preach. And I did that for a few weeks and always felt it was a much better sermon on Saturday night than it ever was on Sunday morning. So I called an old pastor friend of mine and I told him what I was doing. He said, son, says you don't need to leave it on the field on Saturday. You need to bring it on Sunday morning. And so I stopped doing that. But this reminds me of those times. Let me say as a pastor, I miss your face. Um, it's been good to see some of you out and about, uh, like at weddings and other places. But it is uh, good to know that you're watching today, and we pray the Lord will meet us all together in His Word. So hear now the Word of the Lord as we begin reading in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today for the ministry of your Spirit to help us today understand, to turn the lights on for us, uh, to shine the beauty and glory of Jesus into our hearts, to make Jesus real to us. We are hungry for your Word, and we pray that you would feed us and nurture us, that you would speak to us and correct us and challenge us and call us to mission. And so, Father, we pray that this word that goes forth from your mouth will not return to you void or empty, but will prosper where you send it according to your will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's no doubt that the major event in the early chapters of the book of Acts took place on the day of Pentecost, and that is when the exalted Lord Jesus Christ performed the next to the last work of his saving career and calling. Uh, 
And the last would be the second coming. But the next to the last greatest work that Jesus ever accomplished was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, on his waiting people. His incarnation, that is his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, culminated in this great gift which prophets had foretold and which would be recognized as the chief evidence that God's kingdom had been inaugurated, that the kingdom of God had come, not fully come, but it had come. The kingdom of God had perforated into space and time and was inaugurated by all of these events that Jesus himself accomplished on our behalf. And so there is really a new beginning in the history of redemption. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism to equip him for his ministry, his public ministry, so now the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people to equip them for their ministry. So as we recap what we've covered before, before Pentecost, we have a time of waiting. Forty days between the resurrection and the ascension, Christ had shown himself to them uh, with many uh, convincing proofs. He had presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days. Not only did he appear to them, he told them to stay in the city until they were clothed with power. And during that 50-day waiting period, the 40 days where he appeared, and then 10 days after the ascension, he would pour out his Spirit upon the church on the day of Pentecost. And so during that time, they received a great deal of instruction about the kingdom of God. And so there are three points that I want us to look at today. First, I want us to see how Jesus sort of clarified the calendar for his disciples because he does that in this passage. Second, I want us to see also how the mission is defined. And then thirdly, I want us to see how the uh, ascension was witnessed by the apostles. First, how is the calendar clarified? Uh, Luke tells us that for 40 days the risen Lord showed himself with proofs that he was alive. And we saw that last week. He taught them about the kingdom of God. He also instructed them about the coming spirit of God. And so when God established the kingdom of his Messiah, he taught them uh, 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 specifically about the Spirit, and when God established the kingdom of, the, of His Messiah, He would pour out His Spirit, and one of the major signs and blessings of His rule and reign is the outpouring of the Spirit, and why that is so important, Jesus told us in John's Gospel that He would pour out His Spirit upon His people, and the Spirit's major job major role in redemption is not only his quickening, uh, making alive role in, in calling people from death to life and from darkness to light, but also to make Jesus real to them. That is the Holy Spirit's major role in the life of a person, is he makes Jesus real to us in our experience, and he endues us with spiritual power. 
the question that the apostles ask here is not really a non sequitur, but rather it's not something coming out of left field because they knew the promises of the Old Testament that the, the uh, coming of Messiah and his exaltation would uh, enter into the idea of the outpouring of the Spirit, and they assumed when they asked this question that everything is about to be wrapped up, everything is about to occur that they have hoped and dreamed for for generations. For if the Spirit is about to come, does that not imply that the kingdom was about to come as well? And so... The question reveals some fundamental mistakes and misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. The first misunderstanding, they didn't know. And so he doesn't rebuke them for the question. It's a valid question. But he has to correct their understanding of the nature of his kingdom. His kingdom would be a two-stage kingdom, a two-stage coming. There would be the first kingdom our first coming where he establishes his kingdom and pours out his spirit on the church and then he would ascend to the right hand of the father and then that whole period between the ascension and the parousia which is the second coming of Christ would be a time in which the kingdom had been inaugurated but not yet consummated and so what they were looking for was the immediate consummation of the kingdom now we know through further uh, revelation uh, we find in the new testament that the kingdom will not come in its fullness until christ returns and so there's this gap there is this period and the whole point of what jesus says to his disciples in this passage is what are you supposed to be doing during this gap and he tells them you're to be witnessing uh, to me and about me uh, to the to the peoples of the world you are to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what you need to be focused on. That's what you need to be doing. And so the kingdom was now, but it's also not yet. Calvin said about this question, as many errors in this question as there are words. The verb, the noun, the adverb of the sentence reveals sort of eschatological confusion regarding the kingdom. Now, when I throw a word like eschatological out there, it's very simple. Eschatos means last, and last things, and ology means the study of last things. And so Jesus is talking about the end. He's talking about last things. And he's talking about understanding the nature of God's kingdom. And so first, the verb restore meant that the anticipation of the apostles was that there would be a geopolitical territorial kingdom. And the noun they used, Israel, meant that they thought national ethnic Israel would now be brought to its fullness. The Messiah would literally reign on the throne in Jerusalem and God would lift the oppression of the Roman occupying power and all you know, happy days are here again for Israel. And, uh, but they didn't understand what Jesus meant uh, in his teaching regarding the kingdom. And when they said at this time, they were looking for immediate establishment. So in his reply, Jesus corrects, clarifies the calendar of mistaken notions regarding the nature of the kingdom, the extent of the kingdom, and the arrival of the king.
And so the apostles were confused about that. First, he tells them that the kingdom is spiritual in nature. It is not a territorial kingdom. It's not a national kingdom. It's not an ethnic kingdom. You can't find it on a map. And the apostles were confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom nation state Israel. And on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus met those two discouraged disciples, they thought the Redeemer had come to redeem Israel, and they were disillusioned by the cross, but their hope was rekindled by the resurrection. They were dreaming of political domination, the reestablished monarchy, liberation from Roman yoke. And yet Jesus reverts the topic to the Holy Spirit coming upon them and giving them power. And God's kingdom is different than human kingdoms and the power in human kingdoms. Um, and so it's important to see as the disciples made a very common uh, mistake. He promised that his uh, disciples would receive power, but power in God's kingdom today is different from the power in human kingdoms. Um, the reference to the Holy Spirit defines the nature of the power in God's kingdom. It is a kingdom spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. Uh, from the... Uh, um, and he goes so far to tell us that it's by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, not by political intrigue or revolutionary violence. Uh, and on the one hand, while we must not nationalize the kingdom, on the other hand, we must not super-spiritualize the kingdom as if God, God's rule only operates in heaven and not on earth. But the fact is, although it might, must not be identified with any political ideology or program, it has radical social implications. The kingdom of God does. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount uh, uh, that Jesus gave us. And so the first thing that had to be straightened out about was the nature of the kingdom. The second thing was they needed to understand that his kingdom is international in its membership international in its membership. Uh, Jesus sort of borrow, uh, broadens the horizons. Apostles seem to cherish a narrow, narrow nationalistic uh, aspiration. But Jesus broadened their horizons. He says you're to be witnesses in J Jerusalem, in Samaria, in J Judea, and to all the ends of the earth. In the Old Testament, the vision for God's kingdom was expressed this way. In the Old Testament, the nations were going to stream to Zion. In other words, God's people would come together as a city on a hill, and the peoples of the world would stream uh, to Zion to catch the knowledge of God and see the reality of his kingdom. That was the Old Testament hope. The closest they ever got to that was the enthronement of Solomon and the queen of Sheba coming to him and saying his glory far exceeded all the reports she had heard. That was the high point. And so there was sort of a centrifugal movement as people were to come to uh, Israel. As the example, Israel's calling was always to be a light to the nations, and the nations would stream to her as she lived out her role as God's covenant people. But under the new covenant, the situation has changed. The vision has been altered uh, 
as we understand more about it. Now God's people are to go out to the nations. Jesus said in his great commission, go out to the nations and preach the gospel, uh, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things. And so rather than being centrifugal, that is drawn in, now the apostles and witnesses are to be centripetal, that is pushed out. And you'll see it in the book of Acts. God even brings persecution to the church to drive them out of Jerusalem into all the world. And so now the kingdom of God is international in its focus. I used to think when I was a new Christian and heavily influenced by people who emphasized Israel as sort of being what the Bible is all about. It's all about Israel. The Old Testament is about Israel. Uh, then there's this parenthesis or gap where Gentiles come into the church, but ultimately it's going to be the reestablishment of Israel. But I beg to differ now from further reading of the Bible and further understanding over the years I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is not about Israel it's about the true Israel Jesus that's who the Bible is about and that's what the Bible is about and so sometimes we sort of miss the point and some of uh, some particular people's view of that seems to me in some ways to be missing the point though that could be said about all of us all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, go out and make disciples. And so Jesus rules over an international community in which every race, nation, uh, rank and sex are relativized, countless from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And the third thing they needed to understand about the kingdom was it was gradual in its expansion. Rather than being preoccupied, with times and dates and seasons, the period between the ascension and the second coming is to be filled with worldwide mission. Which leads me to ask you this question. Why, did, why does God leave the church on earth to fulfill this calling? That's why we are here worldwide witness to the nations that is our calling that is the focus of our lives when was the last time you shared the gospel with anyone when was the last time you talked to your children about the gospel when was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone at work or someone where you wake out uh, work out you're not doing much of that now uh, someone that you have over for dinner, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. When was the last time you had a gospel conversation? Meaning you shared with them, you witnessed to, you gave witness to the reality of Christ and who he is and what he came to accomplish and what difference that could make in your lives. That is what the church is to be doing between the ascension or between, let's say, Pentecost and the parousia, the second coming, that whole period of time in between, the emphasis is on worldwide mission, not trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. And eschatology may be fun. Thinking about the last days may be intriguing and exciting and interesting, but Jesus is directing the apostles and those who come with the apostles as servants, predicted in Isaiah's book, uh, the, the ser servant community that would speak forth of Messiah, that is what we are to be doing. Now, 
With that said, I think it'd be important for us now to consider the second point, which is Jesus not only clarifies the calendar and the nature of his kingdom, but he defines the mission for them because he, these are really promises. These are not commands that we see in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 1. This is a promise. Let me read it for you again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so the emphasis here is on what Jesus is promising his disciples. And so the first element of the risen Lord's promise is you will receive power. And the qualifying clause explains that this will happen to you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit's coming is not continuous at this point, but rather definitive. It is the day of Pentecost he's referring to, and any time after Pentecost, for those who repent of their sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and are baptized in his name. In the light of this, This coming of the Spirit upon the apostles must be equivalent to being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the word power in the New Testament is often used in reference to miracles. But here it is the power to speak with boldness. Speaking with boldness um, in view of everything that we see that follows in the book of Acts. Especially the task of being Christ's witnesses. Uh, Jesus himself was anointed with the Spirit as God's chosen servant. And he promises that his apostles will shortly be empowered by that same Spirit to share the servant's ministry. All of this is rooted in the book of Isaiah. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a sign that God's end-time restoration has begun. But since the Spirit is specifically given for worldwide mission... The day of the Lord, as it is mentioned in Scripture, Christians have to live with the tension of knowing that the work of the gospel is central to God's plan, but never being able to calculate the exact date or end of time. The second element in the Lord's promise to these uh, apostles regarding their being my witnesses uh, is exactly what it means to be a witness. And the Greek word for witness is the word which we get our English word martyr from. You will be my martyrs. Now that wouldn't be a wonderful thing to hear unless you understood what he meant by that. Uh, Martyrs almost exclusively in the book of, or witnesses, exclusively uh, applies to um, the apostles. Why? Because they were the ones that witnessed the risen Christ. They were the ones that witnessed everything he said and did. And so they were the authoritative witnesses to the nations of the salvation uh, when God's uh, kingdom arrives. Jesus fulfills the divine function of appointing his own witnesses to the nation. And so there are two possible ways of understanding this Greek expression Uh, regarding witnesses they will bear witness to the significance of Jesus and his ministry and they will do so as those who belong to him as his authorized representatives and so 
the emphasis here, I think, is on witnessing to the significance of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what his ministry did, and what their calling was in uh, response to that. And so they were to give testimony. They were to bear witness uh, to those events and the significance in the light of what Jesus had taught them, especially explanation from the Old Testament of the way of the kingdom of God is realized. Peter does this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so the 12 occupy a place in history, a unique place in history, as witnesses of Christ because of the time they spent with him, especially after his resurrection. And because of their commissioning by him, as eyewitnesses, they guarantee the historicity of the major events in Jesus' life as those who were uniquely instructed by him. And so they pass on Jesus' own understanding of his person, that is who he is, and his work, what he's accomplished on our behalf. And even though Paul is called a witness by the risen Christ, his experience and calling are different from the original 12. Um, other characters in Acts witness to Christ only in a secondary and derived sense, which is what we do. How do we stay, how do we stay faithful to the apostolic teaching? By believing and using the Word of God. The Word of God, the New Testament in particular, is the apostolic teaching. And as we understand that, we, in a secondary sense, also witness to the very same thing. And so the sphere of witness, apostolic witness, was to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus echoes the words of Isaiah 49 6, especially with the phrase, to the ends of the earth. Rather than sinking their roots in Jerusalem and waiting for the world to flood in, as I said earlier, the followers of Jesus are to move out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. And this text is also used to justify the ministry of Paul among the Gentiles. And so the promise of God's reign is not simply the restoration of a preserved Israel, but rather the renewal of the calling of Israel, which they always failed at, to be a light to the nations to the ends of the earth. And so Acts 1-8 is a prediction and a promise of the way this divine plan is going to be fulfilled. It is not a command, it is a promise that God will accomplish. And the rest of the book is really the story of how that happens. Because they end up in Rome. And if you know anything about history at this time, the world domination power at this time was Rome. It was the international capital, as it were, of the world. And so Paul, making his way to Rome, is the ultimate micro-fulfillment of this plan as we take it to the ends of the earth from there. And so the book of Acts ends open-ended because we're still called to do exactly the same thing. And so uh, the, the emphasis here is uh, witness is to be the focus of the church in between the Pentecost, which is the day the Spirit was outpoured, to until the second coming of Jesus. The third thing that happens in this text, and by the way, each one of these things I've just mentioned to you is worthy of an entire sermon. 
But uh, there are other books in the Bible we need to cover, so we can't just chew up everything. But the, the third thing is sort of the least talked about, written about, preached about redemptive historical event involving the life of Jesus, and that is the ascension. You hear a lot about the resurrection. You hear even more about the cross, but you don't hear a lot about the ascension and the significance of it. And I'm going to just touch on it this morning. Probably we'll deliver an entire message on the ascension alone, not next Sunday because that's Easter, but the Sunday after. But let me just give you some of the highlights of what we see about the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension appears in the context here as the necessary condition for the transfer of prophetic power to his disciples as in the stories of Moses, as Moses transfers his power to Joshua. It's also true in the Elijah-Elisha narratives. You remember how Elijah's taken up in a fiery chariot. He ascends, much like he's a sort of a type of Christ. But he promises the pouring out of a double spirit of prophecy on Elisha. And Elisha does what? Twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And so out of these Old Testament texts, you start to begin to see what's going on here. The angel's challenge is to believe uh, that they, could, uh, they should function as witnesses and to believe his promise, obey his commands, wait in Jerusalem, and receive the gift of the Spirit. And so the ascension carries within it uh, the core of the Messianic community witnesses this moment. Um, and so the word after this closely links the mission agenda of Jesus with his ascension. And the angelic words that follow, Luke's point is that the missionary activity of the early church rested not only on Jesus' mandate, but also on his living presence in heaven and the sure promise of his return. Think about it. The dust of the earth is on the throne of the universe. I remember a little Sunday school joke Somebody asked one time why God can't use his right hand and only his left hand. And some kid in class said, well, because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. Now, that's a joke. I'm hearing just roaring laughter in here now. But uh, he is at the right hand. The dust of the earth is on the throne of the universe. And although the ascension is distinguished from the resurrection in meaning and significance elsewhere in the New Testament, only Luke gives us a description of it as a separate historical event 40 days after Easter. Now, a, certainly a supernatural act of God is implied as he was taken up or lifted up. And it's brief. A supernatural act happens the fourfold use of the phrase into the sky or heaven, and in verses 10 and 11 further, further emphasizes the notion of going up. Now, although this language should not be taken to mean that heaven is a physical reality somewhere out in space, it should not be dismissed as purely symbolic or pictorial. A bodily ascension fits the Jewish background, especially after the physical resurrection. 
As experienced by the witnesses before their fair eyes, the physical departure of Jesus on this occasion was very different from his disappearances during the preceding 40 days of resurrection appearances. There was something final, something decisive about his going at this time. And so the resurrection appearances in which he condescended to his disciples' temporal condition of life were visitations from the eternal order into which his body of glory now belonged. But what happened on the 40th day was that the series of intermittent visitations came to an end with a scene which brought home to the disciples the heavenly glory of their risen Lord. And so the ascension was not the beginning of this heavenly exaltation. It was the ultimate confirmation of the status that had been given to him from the moment of his resurrection. There is the humiliation of Jesus, and there is the exaltation of Jesus. So the cloud which hid him from their sight most likely indicates the total envelopment in God's presence and glory. Perhaps they recall the cloud as a visible token of God's glory associated with the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, but they uh, witnessed it. And uh, the response of the apostles and the words of the angelic messengers to the details of the attention itself, ascension itself, are given here. And so the awesome nature of the experience left the disciples or apostles looking up intently into the sky. As a friend of mine used to say, more than likely they were getting a sunburn on their tonsils because they were standing there, open mouth, gazing at Jesus living. But the angels remind them of what they need to be doing. Uh, they appeared. They were dressed in white. They stood beside them. Their appearance and their function resembled the two men who met the women at the tomb of Jesus. Supernatural beings attend both the resurrection and the ascension events. Here at the empty tomb, a challenge, why do you stand here looking into the sky, is followed by a correction. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Such gazing, in, gazing into heaven was inappropriate because Jesus' instructions and promises about the Spirit were center stage at this moment. So they would not see him again is what the angels are saying until he returns and by implication they were to believe his promise and obey his command return to the city wait for the empowerment by the spirit and in a promise of Jesus' second coming at an unspecified time there lies a further incentive for engaging in mission for the master will return to call his servants to account. In the face of all possible doubts and disappointments, Luke insists the ascension of Christ is the guarantee that the end will come and all of God's purposes will be fulfilled. But Jesus himself predicted that his second coming would be personal, glorious, and powerful in a cloud with power and great glory. 
But it will not be seen as a private event, as his ascension was, when Jesus returns to usher in the kingdom in all of its fullness, every eye will see him. Revelation 1-7. He will not be alone. As the lightning lights up the sky from one end to the other, so his second coming uh, will somehow be obvious to people everywhere in the world. And the angelic promise effectively, effectively corresponds to Jesus' statement in Mark 13.10, the gospel must first be preached to all nations before the end comes. And so in this passage, we see, as Luke begins to prepare us for the event of Pentecost, exactly what the apostles were doing, the 11. Uh, we will see a, an apostle added uh, soon. But the point here is he's telling them, this is to be your focus. Between my ascension to the right hand of heaven where I am busy being, still being your prophet, your priest, and your king at the right hand of the Father, the thing you are to be focused on is not the times and seasons and dates when Jesus will return, but what you are to be focused on is the mission of the church, taking the gospel to the nations, baptizing those who believe, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, realizing that he is with us as we go. And so that is how Jesus begins to prepare his leadership, his apostles, for Pentecost. And the word to us is, what are we to be focusing on? And who are we to be focusing on? The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things that we normally worry about will be added unto you. We are to seek the kingdom, which means seek the Lord Jesus Christ and be witnesses to the nations. Uh, this promise and command should be the focus of this church. And sometimes it's easy to lose that focus. It's easy to be preoccupied with a hundred other things. It's easy to be preoccupied. I mean, we have a wonderful, historic, beautiful, well, full-orbed, well-articulated theology. And it's important to study theology. It's important to know theology. Everyone is a, theolo a theologian. But the focus of the time here is to do the one thing that the church seems to fail to do more than any other, and that is be a witness to the nations, to the nations. We should be looking for ways not only to reach our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria, but also the ends of the earth. That should be the heartbeat, not only of the church, but every person in it. So what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing in light of this call? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it speaks to us today. It tells us a lot about the nature of your kingdom. It tells us a lot about the promises and commands of the missionary call. And it gives us assurance as we see that our Lord ascended and is now instated and exalted at the right hand. Even in the face of this coronavirus, he still sits on the throne of the universe. And the universe obeys his commands. So we pray that we would turn our eyes to see him, 
to witness his beauty and glory, and then to share that with a world that is hurting, that is confused, that is scared to death, that doesn't know uh, up from bottom, that we would be willing to be the ones you would use to bring that message of liberation and hope of Jesus and him crucified, resurrected, and ascended at the right hand and coming again to fix this mess. He's already begun that work, but we anticipate his finishing of that work when he comes again. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.